Hello and welcome back to EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our Big Ideas series. Today, I'm grateful to be joined by Max Eden, a senior fellow with the Manhattan Institute, who is the author of a recent report, Advanced Opportunities, How Idaho is Reshaping High Schools by Empowering Students, which was also featured in a recent Wall Street Journal article titled, An Education Innovation That Beats Learning Pods. This is the subject of our discussion today. Max, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Of course. Now, micro schools and learning pods obviously have been all the rage lately, especially with the pandemic closing down in-person instruction in so many schools nationwide. Your op-ed promises something even better than learning pods, which uh, is a very high bar, might even be fighting words on this podcast. So tell us what's going on in Idaho. Well, uh, hopefully I can defray any potential fisticuffs between the two of us by assuring you that with all due respect to their editorial wisdom, it wasn't my title idea. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. The lead-in of the learning pods was more of a, how do you make an evergreen, something cool that's happening in some state story, palatable for Wall Street Journal readers. So the argument of the piece and, and my argument isn't necessarily that this is better than learning pods. It's not necessarily that it has anything to do with learning pods. But Idaho has done something very interesting, unique, not quite like anything else we've seen in the school choice or education policy and reform seen more broadly. And so when you have a situation where there's only one place this reform is happening, but it looks like it could catch fire, I thought it'd be worth highlighting in a report and the journal agreed. So nothing against learning pods, they can coexist very peacefully, but I'll give you the short version of it, which is that, you know, there's this kind of tension in the school choice debate where one side, typically, if I may say our side says the money should follow the students, education will be better if students and parents can direct the resources that the state gives them. And the other side says, you don't take resources away from our public schools. That'll be less money for the schools. That'll hurt the schools. Idaho is in a way split the difference by providing you know, what your viewers might recognize as effectively an ESA that can be used within the public school system, right? So the way that this program operates is when students hit seventh grade, all of a sudden they have an ESA account that has $4,125 in it. And they are told by their guidance counselors, hey, now you have this money at your disposal. Here are the things that you can do with it. And the things that it can be used for are, you know, limited, but varied enough to make the potential for students to really customize their public education experience, right? Students can use that money to pay for overload courses. They want to take extra courses during the summer. They want to take an extra course during the school year. There's some course that the school might not be able to offer or hadn't thought about offering until all of a sudden turns out there are 20 students who in one school I talked to, want to learn more about aviation. (laughs) And the public school can take the money that's provided to them through this program to work with a local airport to educate students about who want to go above and beyond in a kind of career technical, this is what the aviation industry looks like class in high school. So it can be used by public schools to vary their offerings along those lines. It's can be used by students to pay for AP courses, to pay for CLEP courses, to pay for any sort of advanced coursework tests like that. 
It can be used to pay for professional certification examinations. So, you know, the student wants to demonstrate that they have a particular competency that is a saleable skill if they're not necessarily the college-bound type of student. This can, as of now, pay for them to demonstrate their competency in that profession. And the hope is moving forward, although it hasn't fleshed out yet, can be used to help pay for apprenticeships and more kind of traditional off-site career and technical development courses in conjunction with community colleges. Most of the money and most of the action on this, however, has been used for dual credit enrollment courses, right? Basically, Idaho has a fixed price for dual credit enrollment. I think it's 165 a credit at this point. And so if it's 165 a credit, you have $4,000 in your pocket. All of a sudden, you have the ability to, if you really go above and beyond, use public funds to finance up to even two years of college credit and graduate high school with an associate's degree. So it has been a program that's only been in place for about four years now, but it has almost quadrupled the number of credits taken for colleges. Some high schools have really taken advantage of it and are branching out to offer kind of different courses they haven't traditionally been able to do. And it's one of the very few examples, you know, we typically tend to, amongst our school choice brethren, you know, say traditional public schools aren't that responsive, don't adapt, don't have any need to meet the preferences of the families they serve because they're a monopoly provider. But this actually gives schools a reason to meet those needs by empowering the students to direct the education as they go through the public system. Right. So they don't call them ESAs, right? They're not called education savings accounts, although they do seem to operate somewhat like them in a more limited capacity. I believe they're called uh, advanced opportunities accounts. Yes. Is that correct? The advanced opportunities program, you couldn't just say, take these dollars and say, okay, I'm going to go take a class at a local private school, um, no. or I'm going to you know, go to uh, hire my own private tutor, right? Those are things that you could do with K-12 ESAs, like let's say in Arizona or Florida. But it certainly tremendously expands the number of options that are available through the public system, mm-hmm. right? How did this policy come to be adopted? I mean, I would have expected, let's say, let's say Arizona and Florida, I would have expected the public schools in those states to have responded with something like this. Mm-hmm. Idaho does not have a private school choice program, at least not yet. And yet they were really forward thinking in creating a sort of choice microsystem in their district school system. So how, how did this happen? Yeah, it's kind of a fun story. The key architect of the legislature is a guy named Senator Stephen Thane, who's been there for, he's in the state Senate now, he's in the House of Representatives before that, he was a Spanish teacher and a dairy farmer before that. And he is, you know, not your typical education reform type of politician, right? Most education reform politicians think to themselves, how do I, you know, do the most for the students who are the most disadvantaged and what ways can we change the system his mentality, his philosophy is, you know, there's a huge flaw in the traditional public school idea. The flaw is that we expect families to hand over their students to a system and we expect the system to take care of them. And he thinks that's not really how families work, how society should work, how humans truly do work. So he had been spending several years looking for ways to inject kind of more agency into the traditional public school system. And he had a few ideas to do this, right? One idea was to give students 
the ability to take advanced course offerings, uh, to take dual credit enrollment courses and subsidize them in different ways that they meet different criteria, right? So there was one program, and I might not be getting all the details correctly because they're somewhat confusing, and I'll explain why that's the fact that they're confusing is important in a second. It was a program for you know, students who earn all of their credits by junior year can take up to X many courses their senior year, and students who kind of do this well on this can earn access to this many credits, and students can, if they want to, use some funds to take courses more quickly and graduate early, and if they graduate early, then they can take some of the money that was left over for them from graduating early from the traditional public school on with them to college and he had created four of these programs over the course of about six years with this idea of just how do I help kids who want to get ahead and want to take ownership, take ownership. And as he was doing it, there's a woman who was kind of overseeing the programs, the Idaho Department of Education, and she was going around to school districts, training them in the various programs. And she got this consistent feedback from school administrators of like, this is a nice idea, but I'm not an accountant. There are too many requirements. These requirements are overlapping. You know, students don't even necessarily know which they're eligible for and how, and why is this all so complicated? And I'm a guidance counselor and what, like, this is harming my ability to help these students. And, you know, she was kind of taken aback by these ideas, all of which, you know, I would be for in themselves. And I think many people, which stance on choice in general or not, would be, would be, oh, that sounds like a nice program. That sounds like, like, like a nice program. But you put them all together and it, it couldn't be administered effectively. So she was reflecting on just the complaints that she was getting from local school officials about it. And she thought to herself, you know, it'd be a lot simpler if instead of setting all these terms and conditions and making the school district responsible for reimbursing students after students' families pay, after a delay, contingent on performance and everything else, if we just had an account and they could direct the money. And that idea occurred to her and she kind of took it to one of her superiors who said, oh, that's a nice idea, but I don't think the like, legislature will help go for it. She took it to another superior who thought, oh, that's a really cool idea. You should talk to Stephen Thane. I think he might really like it. And they had a conversation. He thought, wow, that is a really good idea. This is what my philosophy actually is. And all my earlier programs were just kind of efforts to get at it by reforming the system. But really I want to give these families and these students agency this is a much cleaner, simpler way to do it. And, you know, fortunately for the students of Idaho, the state legislature is single party control, small state, people know people. There was still, you know, some satisfaction with these programs. They had seen some growth. Uh, but after they, after they implemented it, these programs just took off. They expected there to be, I don't know if these numbers precisely correct, but they expected there to be about $5.5 million in student spending in the first year, and there were $14 million of student spending in the first year. They found that, you know, geez, once you just say to students, here, this is yours, this is what you can do with it. You know, it created a kind of change in American high schools that I don't think there's really any analog to in any other state. One of the fascinating things about this for me is that it creates a feedback mechanism, right? This is one of the reasons that we argue that having a system of choice is better than having a top-down or monopoly system, right? Is because the people in that system need some sort of mechanism to express their preferences. And that's very hard when you have a system that's basically governed by elections. 
So you've yeah. got a school board race every few other years. Most people have no idea who's on their school board. Most people don't vote in school board elections, even when their children are going to school. There's obviously the, the problem of capture by special interests. And then even then, let's say that you had some idea that you wanted to get through to be successful. You've got to get a majority of people to agree with you that this mm-hmm. is something, right? And that's very, very hard to do. So at best in a politically governed system or democratically governed, at best, you're going to have the wishes of the majority expressed, but not the minority. And very often what you have is actually a vocal or politically connected minority having its views expressed, but even at the expense of the majority. What you get in a market is each family has a way to express their desires in the market. And then the market responds to those aggregate desires. They have found a way here in Idaho to combine these two systems, to offer these sorts of individual choices. So as you mentioned before, you know, you might have, let's say you may have 50 students somewhere that decide that they want to study AP Mandarin Chinese, which the system had no idea, right? They weren't offering this, but all of a sudden you've got a critical mass of students and it's far from the majority. It's actually a very small minority of students that want to do it, but it's enough of them that you can actually start offering that class either online, elsewhere. As I believe you mentioned in the article, there's a whole bunch of these students that are using the advanced opportunities program for online courses, or you might have enough students that you could hire somebody local that is is able to fulfill this need. So they're actually able to combine the two. I mean, do you think this is something that we might start seeing in other states? I would like to think so. I mean, before the pandemic hit, I had pretty high hopes for, you know, this paper and its possible effects. And granted, Idaho is a deep red state. It's not necessarily representative of politics everywhere, but it was bipartisan. The Democrats didn't particularly object to it. And there isn't that strong of a reason to object to it because from a public education perspective, it is an added investment in the system that the system itself benefits from right? And different players within the system can benefit from. So, you know, a public school that chooses to can take advantage of this to add those courses on, add more money coming through to their teachers to teach different things. It's just a net plus to them. Community colleges in the higher education sector, you know, I know it's part I haven't covered as much yet, but the money passes through the schools to them in large part, right? So you have kind of a different education establishment that would have a very strong vested interest in seeing something like this happen because all of a sudden they can expand their enrollments. And typically the way it's been done in Idaho and it is done in other states, although Idaho at this point is I think the number one state is in a dual credit. The teacher is commissioned as an agent of the university. The curriculum is aligned, the quality is monitored, and the high school teacher is essentially teaching a college course on behalf of the college within the high school while he or she is picking up a full-time teacher salary and also a stipend from the community college. So part of that money flows through the students to the community college and comes back to the teacher. <laughs> where, where are the losers of that, right? Politically, right. it will encounter more friction than I would like to think, even the best of places, certainly in equal blue states. There's one article about dual learning in general by a guy in the AFT magazine who just 
decried the fact that it's blending the difference between high school and college, which they think is a terrible thing. Turns out a lot of parents think that's a great thing. <laughs> Turns out a lot of parents would love for their kid to graduate from high school with a semester or a year's worth of credits. And so, so the AFT union is not particularly excited about non-unionized college professors moving in on their students, essentially. No, but the hope is that in places where they're less strong or you know, more enlightened, they would not be unenthused about the prospect of their members making possibly a few thousand dollars extra a year by going above and beyond. So before the pandemic hit, I had in mind like, you know, this could be adopted in a handful of more states in the next two or three legislative cycles. With the budget crunch, I'm slightly less optimistic about its immediate potential. But the argument that I've made to policymakers, legislators, and kind of think tank groups, and the implicit argument of the piece, bringing it back to pods, right, is that if uh, traditional public schools want to show that they're actually committed to quality and wanted to you know, draw parents back into the system and give them confidence, it would behoove them to provide something that they couldn't get at home. And in Idaho right now, they had a bill to try to expand this to students who are in private schools and home schools, that bill failed. But you can see a pro-public school argument for this being, we need to add this benefit because we really might start losing people altogether. But if the value proposition now is stay in the public school system and you can graduate with a head start on college, or you can graduate with us subsidizing your efforts to gain a career saleable skill, the better value proposition is to keep kids in the public monopoly system. And actually, one of the things that excited me about this politically was that point. So first off, in states where the political environment is just not ripe for educational choice in a robust way to pass in the near future, and I'm thinking, let's say, California, New York, right? They're not going to get, most likely, I mean, who knows, but most likely, I I think it's not on the horizon right now that there's going to be a robust educational choice program like an education savings account in those states. Nevertheless, because the money is staying in the public system, this could be a way that you could, you know, bridge that right-left political divide. And for those who want more choices and essentially a market that provides a feedback mechanism, this does that. For those who want to keep the money in the system, this also does that. So maybe this is a way of really improving the system and providing more choice within the system in those states that can't have those types of more robust educational choice programs. On the flip side, though, states that already have robust private education options, this would be a great way for the public school system to be more competitive, Mm -hmm. right? To say, hey, you know what? You don't have to leave us. We've got these options here. You can stay here in in the system. And that's what we want, too. I mean, I I know there's always the critique out there. Oh, you guys just want to, like, destroy the public school system. No, no, I want all kids to have access to a wide variety of options. I don't really care at the end of the day if that's a government-run system or a private-run system. I just want as many options as possible, and I want access for as many kids as possible. I want those public schools. As we've seen in Arizona, we've seen tremendous improvement in the public school system. In the last decade, Arizona has the most robust educational choice environment in the country. In Maricopa County, which is about 60% of the state, You've got more than half of students attending a school besides their zone school. They have the highest ed choice share in the country, you know, of students using education savings accounts or tax credit scholarships, 
highest number of kids in the country going to a charter school. It's about 18% now. You know, so what we've seen over the last decade is Arizona as the fastest improving state on the NAEP. I could definitely see this in other states helping to expand options and, and really expand opportunity. Yeah. I mean, just the other day offline, you know, we were talking about folks who are trying to find ways to get college courses democratized for high school students and how can we provide an opportunity and an option for students who have the the ability and the desire to get that head start. And it's frankly something that the public school system is in a great position to be able to immediately <laughs> grab and offer as a differentiation point, right? How many students could be drawn back into a traditional public high school if your Maricopa County school district decided, hey, we maybe even as a school district thing, we're gonna give the students $2,000 they can use in the course of their high school careers to take courses at local community college and sponsored. And so if you attend our public high school, you have the chance of shaving a year or two off college. It's a great proposition. It could attract people back to the system. I think part of the unspoken or not yet articulated argument against it that I fear will be fielded, and this is one of the places where I really kind of worry about and fret about the direction of you know how ideas of equity are jumping around in the education space is an argument against it that I heard, which was you know stated not emphatically, but as a matter of fact up there is at this point in time, this program is primarily benefiting students who are advanced <laughs> and it was designed to do so, right? It was designed to be the advanced opportunities program, which some people think is great. I tend to be of the mind is great, but there are other people who have a lot of sway over public education that they think that's, uh, if we have to spend more money, that's the last place we should spend it, right? The last thing we need to do is to help the kids who are already ahead get further ahead. So you might see that counter argument made with success in the states you know like california or like new york however and it's still untested you can't point to idaho and say it's a success story in the career and technical education side but if they can pull off with career and technical educations just a shadow of what they've done with dual credit enrollment then there becomes a very very strong kind of social justice equity case to this is a way to help public schools, help kids who aren't college bound, who don't want to be college bound, and who don't need to be college bound, graduate not just with a high school diploma that's meaningless because everybody has one, but actually with a saleable skill that they go straight into the job market for. And some of the folks I talked to at the Boise School District, which is the most, you know, the most advanced career and technical education program of any of the districts out there, you know, those guys are like, it's really sad because when kids are like, K through six, even K through eight, we always ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then when they hit high school, we start asking them, where do you want to go to college? And the beautiful thing about this program for the past few years is we can really start having that college conversation with kids quicker because, hey, do you want to start getting courses next year? You can start accumulating college credits next year. And the hope is, and it'll take a few more years to see if it will make good on that hope, but that you could also start to have the conversation, a more serious conversation about what do you want to do when you grow up and how can this school help you do that? How can this school help you be something that you want to be? And if you want to become, you know, a highly trained welding technician who can, in many cases, make much better than the white collar work that you'd have to go to college to get, we can put you in a position to 
have a union job, solid benefits, pension, retirement trajectory, it can put you there at age 18. And it's not going to cost you anything. It's going to, but it requires you going down this path, which we're now going to be able to build. Has the program seen any challenges so far? Any hiccups, difficulties implementing it? I hesitate to say not really, because it sounds like a flip, <laughs> a flip and answer. But the biggest challenge that was articulated to me, and I've spoke to a range of people, including people who you know could or should have been critical of it, it just has, it's cost a lot more than it was expected to cost, which was a challenge and a little friction within the Idaho state legislature. And that was, you know, that's been overcome, but. It, it cost a lot more because there was a lot more interest in it than they had anticipated. Yeah, no, a lot more demand. I mean, would you have guessed that more than half of high school students want to take a college level course? Frankly, I don't know that I would have guessed that. I personally might have guessed, going back to your kind of democratic process deliberation versus market revelation, you know, I might have guessed that 15% want to. And if I were a policymaker, I might say, okay, let's have a program designed to allow up to 15% and we'll build all of our assumptions around that. And that's something very much like that is what they built their budget projection into. They expected first year's expense to come in at about 5.4 million. That's what they told the legislature would cost. And it cost 16 million because three times as many students as they thought wanted to, wanted to. So if you were giving advice to policymakers in other states that are thinking of copying Idaho in some sense, what would that be? I mean, first and foremost, it would be to do it. It's an incredibly attractive proposal to make to a variety of stakeholders, right? Like to schools, the proposition is, hey, we'll help your teachers get more money if they you know, go above and beyond. We'll also help you have the flexibility to build out programs that you don't have the free resources to build. To community colleges, it's, we're gonna funnel enrollment and dollars to you. And to students, it's, we'll give you $4,000 to direct your career. So I would almost just say, copy it wholesale and see if it gets the same results in your state as got in Idaho. Even if the career and technical side of it doesn't come to fruition, the fact that a lot of high school advanced credits and in some cases normal courses have converted to be effectively deliveries of community college level and for your college level curriculum and itself represents a pedagogical advance. Teachers have better material, have more training around it. You know, we don't really track high school progress and standardized tests the same way that we do in elementary and middle school. But I think there's a strong case that at the very minimum, this will just help high schools teach students better curriculum better. So I would just say, look at it, do it, read the report, reach out to the people there. They're very friendly, <laughs> and very fun, smart folks. And as soon as you see a budget opening, pitch it if you're a legislator. My guest today has been Max Eden, senior fellow with the Manhattan Institute, the author of the recent Wall Street Journal article titled, An Education Innovation That Beats Learning Pods. Max, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Our guest today has been Max Eden, senior fellow with the Manhattan Institute, who is the author of a new report, Advanced Opportunities, How Idaho is Reshaping High Schools by Empowering Students. This has been another edition of EdChoice Chats. If you have any ideas for authors you'd like us to interview for the Big Ideas series, please send them to media at edchoice.org and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on social media at edchoice and don't forget to sign up for our emails on our website, edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll catch you next time.